Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here as we're nearing the end of the first week of June 2021. Our very gray May here in Sitka transitioned to June and continued to be gray and wet. Although the forecast is for some sunshine this week, we'll see if that holds up. Uh, there have been some summers where it seemed like sun was in very short supply, and I guess time will tell whether this ends up being one of those. Of course, life goes on regardless of the weather, and the birds have mostly arrived. The only species that I have yet to observe that I expect might show up is a cedar waxwing. The rest of the breeding birds are here, and in fact, some of the first nesting birds have already fledged young. I saw some fledgling juncos and heard about fledgling robins as well this past week. Probably there are also fledgling song sparrows, all of those are some of the earlier birds to arrive here. In fact, the song sparrows and juncos are resident over the winter, and I think some of those continue on to nest here in the spring. With all the low clouds and rain, it had been a while since I'd seen the iconic Mount Edgecombe here in Sitka. So a couple days ago when it emerged and I happened to be out and saw it, I was a little surprised at how much bare ground was showing. I think it felt a little sudden because it had been a lot more snow the last time I had seen it. Although many of the other mountains still have much more snow than I have come to expect for this time of year, at least based on recent patterns. I've been trying to keep track of when the snow melts off some of the peaks around town, and so far 2012 was definitely the year with the most persistent late snow. So we'll see if this year comes close to that or if things warm up and the snow melts off a little more quickly. If you're getting out and around this time of year, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. The conversation I have for this week's show is part of one that I recorded with Richard Carsonson not too long ago. He is a naturalist based out of Juneau, but has worked all over southeast Alaska. And we'll go ahead and join the conversation with him telling me a little bit about watching mountain goats behind his house. Well, I live uh, right above the high school downtown um, on Barron's Avenue in plain view of what folks locally call Barron's Slide Zone or Bar- the Barron's Chute. And I'm call- as I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm calling it Nettle Slide because it's chock full of nettles. I've always been aware of the, the goats on this hillside and, and could have probably come up with a crude phenology you know i knew that i first started to see them in mid-october and would probably see the last of them toward the end of may as they move back up into their alpine range but i never really took notes on them or tried to film them or uh quantify them in any way and uh it's, it's part. It's largely because of COVID, which really turned me into a homebody. Um, I've done almost zero traveling outside of the Juno area, uh, and and uh, I, I, even within, um, I, I just haven't uh, um, been ranging as much as I used to. Um, but to my delight, the, I just just discovered this year since October that. There's this amazing pageant going on almost every day. Um, it's a rare day that I can't find a mountain goat up there. Um, some days are better than others, of course. Um, so I, I, um, I can step outside my apartment, walk 22 steps over to Corin Bosworth's carport and set up a spot scope. And um, it, it's a, a very nice spot scope that my wife, Kathy, uses in the summer for her olive-sided flycatcher research. And I discovered that with a 
um, attachment for my cell phone, I can take nice 4K video of animals a quarter mile away or half mile away and generally put them in an age and gender class. Um, uh, and and there, there are also several recognizable individuals. Um, in this population that I can see, we have three females with um, one or more horns missing and one male. So we have four individuals you could, you could consider marked. Um, uh, if they don't have some distinctive horn feature, I'm not confident enough to, to say that, um, for example, a, a, a big male that I see on one day is the same that I see the next day. They're just too similar looking. But um, I, I, between having these recognizable individuals and um, being able to put them into age and gender classes and then watching how their, their um, uh, habitat use patterns change over the winter, it's, it's just really been exciting. Then we've added to that um, motion cameras um, in mostly um, on, on trees in dense forest near uh, escape terrain. Um, and that is um, be, being able to see what's happening in the deep forest that we can't get the, our telescopes on has also added a lot to the to the story. And you can and, um, stream these from Juno Nature. There's uh, there's two uh, posts in particular that have to do with the motion camera results that um, have been very revealing. A number of shorter ones. Do you, do you have a sense of how many goats are, are wintering on this slide area? That's really tough uh, because uh, I suspect it's well over 50, may, maybe closer to 100. Oh, wow. Um, but uh, I, I almost never have more than a dozen in view at one time because the cover is just so dense. Um, so... Uh, and that's why it's valuable to have some recognizable individuals. In theory, we could do a marked recite estimate um, if, if we got a bunch of friends together and, and did a um, really thorough count at an optimum time of day, maybe in the evening when they're most visible. Um, say that we counted 30 goats that we could say have both their horns or are missing and say that one of those goats has a missing horn, then uh, in theory, we would have, because we have four missing horn goats uh, with a lot of assumptions and sideboards, of course, we would have four times 30 goats in our population. Yeah. So the, are, are they pretty, I guess my assumption and guess would be that that the goats that are wintering there are there for the winter. They're not really moving between winter winter locations, but I, I don't right. really know that's if there the are connected locations. That's the first assumption you have to apply in a Mark Resite uh, estimate: is uh, is it a closed system or or are they moving in and out? And that may or may not be true with these so, Nanny Onehorn. I've seen probably 30 times and mm -hmm. um and i uh over an area of maybe uh 100 acres um so so i have a really good sense that she's a very sedentary female um the other goats i haven't seen that much 
a Billy one horn who's missing his horn on the right side. I saw him back in the rut in uh, November, I think, and he has just reappeared um, and we're getting really good views of him. Um, but uh, yeah, was he, does that mean he was here all winter or did he go somewhere else? Yes. So many questions. And I know, I know that um, Kevin White and others that, that have been working with him have, done a reasonable amount of, of work on the mountain goats of Baranoff Island. I think there's some interesting genetic questions about, about whether there was a, a pre-introduction population of mountain goats on, on the island. Uh, there were certainly goats introduced to the island, and, and those are clearly there in the, in the, when they've looked at the genetics as well. But there's kind of this, this other group that seems a little mysterious, as I understand it. Uh, anyway, I don't know if they've done... Uh, found some more results of that in, in recent years or not, but, but uh, that they've done some collar, collar uh, work, you know, satellite um, or GPS collar uh, work with the goats and, and that males in particular during the rut can go a long ways. Like they'll be, they'll be traveling, but females tend to not move around nearly as much. Uh, and and especially not in the winter. And I don't know if there's been any of that kind of study done around the, the your area or or not. Um, uh, but the fishing game tends to prioritize the hunted populations, and we're in a closed area, mm. um, so I don't think there's been as much incentive to um, to do telemetry on animals here. But Kevin's been really fun to to um, bounce ideas back and forth with. He's done a lot of work this this year up in the Chilcat, which is uh, an, an amazing system with with some real intriguing differences um, uh, between. It's a transition area between dry interior mountain goat ranges, which are where they stay high all winter, and then the more typical coastal. Uh, situation where they descend to pretty low elevations in the winter. Um, and we, we are both really interested right now in the relationship of avalanches to goat habitat. Uh, 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 something like 40% of Kevin's uh, collared animals, when he goes out to retrieve the collar, when the animal dies, are found in the runouts of avalanche zones. Um, and that's even more on Baranoff Island, where there are no wolves, and you subtract predation from the mortality, uh, there's something like 60%. So on on average, a goat that dies on Baranoff Island is going to die in an avalanche or by getting hit by a rock or you know, that that type of trauma. Yeah, yeah, I, I've I've heard there there are some bears that will uh, seem to have developed a certain special specialization at least in in that season transitional season as the goats are moving down from from the high country in the in the early fall snows and actually that makes me curious if if in these these last winters where it hasn't really gotten cold as early uh and and our our deeper snows haven't come until later in the year or maybe even into the the following calendar year in january if if this is less of a thing, but uh, some folks that I I know uh, who guided uh, hunters for goats uh, talked about seeing bears that would 
as the goats were coming down, of course, this is why the hunters were going there in part is because the goats were coming down off the off the high country into somewhat more accessible areas and that there were bears that would sort of, they would get in places where they could run above the goat and then the goats didn't have any place to go but down. And and then once they were down, the bears could could uh, could dispatch them pretty easily if they were in the forest or or anything other than you know sort of their preferred safety habitat of those those cliffy areas where they have the, the definite advantage. Um, but yeah, it, it's kind of interesting to think about the the lives of goats and and they live in such such treacherous terrain uh, and and yet move around it so easily. <laughs> some of the places where I've gone hiking uh, and I'm not, you know, I'm not much for like rock climbing stuff. I don't, I don't really do that, but just looking at the places the goats are going up and down and, and sometimes just running up and down is just astounding to me that they aren't falling off all the time. Then this is the time to see that they're um, just feeling their oats now that everything's popping up green and they're, they're just living in this giant salad bowl and, they're challenging each other, um, leaping downhill and, and twisting around, catching themselves and rushing at each other and doing war dancing. And um, this this uh, posture called a low stretch where a dominant animal will get down low and approach almost slinking along the ground. Um, so that it's a really interesting time for these um, high intensity encounters. Mm. Uh, I, w- when I started this study back in the fall, I was mostly interested in the rut and we saw some really amazing interactions of males and females and, and the, the following younger animals in the rut. And uh, I thought, you know, it was going to get um, kind of, you know, relatively boring after that. You no, know, it was just going to be a matter of mapping them, but I just continue to see these, really interesting interactions and uh, i don't think i could ever get tired of mountain goats and i've already started to think i i want to get some friends to help me pack some camps up into the the ridge systems and uh do some more filming and, and goat watching in the summer in their alpine range mm. yeah i suppose i suppose you you all have some some Helicopter access is a little easier in in some scenarios there, but and also is is are these goats that you're watching would they be accessible from Mount Roberts and or or is it kind of a a, a very different ridge system? I think that, that it's probably connected, and that's something that um, I'm not even sure Fishing Game has a handle on is the, how would you define this breeding population? It certainly goes from Shatlach. Uh, Mount Juno, all the way back to Granite Basin and around. But does it, um, do, are these goats a, a breeding unit with the goats of the Sheep Creek uh, watershed to the south? Um, there, uh, right now we're seeing lots of goats on the south side of Zantakahini, of Gold Creek, um, in an area that's um, it matches all of the characteristics that Fish and Game considers important for winter habitat, but it's a very isolated little area. And um, my my guess is that these goats do not winter there, even though it, it, um, it, it would be ideal, but for its size, but rather they're probably coming off of 
the the larger system that my goats are on and just crossing the creek and going over there to um, to use the late winter and early spring habitat. Hmm. And are you, I guess I don't, I mean, there are deer around there presumably, and I, I don't know what the deer populations are like in, in that area, but are they interacting at all with the goats or in similar areas in the winter? We, uh, so we have one camera that was at 1,200 feet all winter, and we never filmed a deer there, and the, the, the snow piled up to well over a meter, and the goats were continuing to use it. Uh, uh, the, there'd be periods when it was too soft, and we wouldn't see any on the camera, and then the snow would firm up, and the goats would come back. No deer there, but at another camera that's at uh, 650 feet, um, there were more deer than goats. And uh, we, the, we've always had a lot of deer on Hootsnuwu, Admiralty Island, and on Sayyik, Douglas Island. Um, but the mainland, when I arrived here 40 years ago, um, deer populations were pretty thin. But that's changing um, for a number of reasons. Probably most important would be warming conditions and less severe winters. And I was really impressed at the number of different deer individuals uh, appeared on the camera just a quarter mile up behind where I live. Mm. Yeah, one of the things around here that the the deer, I don't remember them. And, and talking to my dad, who would have been paying more attention when I was a child, he, he doesn't remember seeing deer, deer tracks uh, in in town much. But it's not last few years it's not been unusual to see deer walking through town in the middle of or walking through my neighborhood which is is pretty central in the middle of the day uh somewhat to my annoyance at times that, that they'll mostly i think they're moving through in, early in the morning and i don't i don't happen to see them but I, I see the evidence of their passing in in the form of my uh some of my yard plants being uh chewed down a lot more than i would prefer <laughs> especially my apple trees getting getting uh nicked so uh, so they seem to have gotten comfortable. I remember talking to Richard Nelson about it once, and he said he said that it often takes a while, but once the once there are some deer that figure out that if you avoid the dogs, uh, traffic isn't a threat, and and people aren't really a threat in town. It's just you got to be aware of the dogs. Uh, that town's actually got a lot of good food and and is pretty safe. That the deer start moving in and getting comfortable, and then you start to see them a lot more. Uh, but it, it takes a while for those first ones to start doing that. And, uh, and then, and then they'll show up more. And so maybe it was something along those lines that that's happened here. I, I don't know. Um, yeah, and, we're seeing that here. Um, I, I wish I had a better understanding of how deer can deal with dogs. Um, people that let dogs out, uh, on the, there's a row of houses, um, above us here in the Highlands neighborhood that back right up against Old Growth Forest, very steep Old Growth Forest, and the deer are coming down really close. But I, I, I would love to have a map of which yards they get closest to. I would guess it's the yards that don't have dogs. Yeah, that would be an interesting thing. I don't, I know that they, they did some, Phil Mooney, when he was working here, and I don't know how many years he was doing this work uh, and, and if it's continued or not, but he did have some radio collared deer around Sitka and they were just beginning to investigate 
or he was doing some investigation as to the range range of these deer. And, and actually just, I listened to a podcast um, conversation that Jim Bachtel was involved in, and I hadn't realized how much he'd gotten involved in uh, black-tailed deer research, uh, primarily, uh, you know, in his area there on the Southern Outer Islands. And uh, some of the work that they're finding about how, how little many deer move, like their home ranges are remarkably small uh, in, in some cases and some move f- further, but, uh, some of them don't move very far at all. And I suppose like there's a sensibility to that, right? If you are getting enough food, then you're a lot safer in a place you're familiar with, you know, the threats and you know, the safe places and you know, you know, what to avoid and, and what not to. And so there's, there's a certain safety in not, not going that far. You know, when we travel to a new town, new city, uh, you know, there's a discomfort associated with that because we don't, <laughs> We don't know what's going on exactly. Whereas the, the circles that we travel in our in our home communities are are much more comfortable, and and we we know how to navigate those. So the um, the goat project is that one that you it sounds like you're you're looking considering ways to continue that uh, through through the summer, and then and then maybe I guess given that it's so accessible to to where you're living that uh, take a take a look again next next fall yeah yeah i'm um uh, really curious to see if uh, how uh different winter conditions change change their use of this terrain we we ended up by march having a pretty severe winter here and that uh brought the goats down quite low um i think people would be surprised to know how close the goats were behind their houses and the uh, the uppermost streets in our neighborhood. Um, but um, on other years when it's been a mild winter, they're not pushed down that far. So that, that'll be interesting to watch. Yeah, I, I, my, my thought initially is that we don't really have goats that come down that low along the road system, but there's no end of things that I thought that I knew that turned out that I didn't know. <laughs> so I hesitate to say that with any sort of assurance. I, I do know there are places in the in the broader area where they come down low, uh, kind of winter winter habitat places. I've talked to folks that were hunters and and had noticed uh, kind of avalanche tracks or cliffs or ravines or, or forested areas that were lower elevation. Um, but it seems like they're not really doing that quite as much here along the road system as as it sounds like they're doing at least where that central part. And are you you know I've I've heard these stories about you know downtown Juneau being in in these avalanche track uh like high risk of of if an avalanche came down that was large it could it could take out a big chunk of of downtown juno is that part of you, you know where you're living is is part of that area or it, it it i am just outside of what the avalanche experts map as the 300 year repeat event uh zone um, and we had one day when um, the, the Urban Avalanche Advisory every morning puts up a, a new forecast and they, they use a scale from one to five, one being low risk and five being extreme. And um, they uh, uh, recommended that the folks that are on the end of our street evacuate the um, I forget exactly when, I think early March, when they bumped the risk up to level five extreme. Um, and fortunately, uh, nothing happened. 
But we did get a pretty serious avalanche down the uh, northwestern edge of the nettle slide in, uh, I think it was April 14th. It came, It's the, the starting uh, area was at about 2,000 feet, and it swept down the left side and ripped up a bunch of soil and tore down trees. There were a, a couple of my landmark trees, there was one that I, I named herd tree because I often saw herds of goats around it. That got snapped off. Um, and uh, the, the avalanche, what I call the bedload portion of it, um, fingered out when it when it started to hit lower gradients down near the maintenance road. It, it spread out into five fingers, um, and uh, it, it's, st- it's still even now approaching June. Um, there's fairly deep snow and uh, that is like set up like cement. And to my knowledge, um, it didn't kill any goats. Um, but who knows, maybe one, the, the one could still melt out and they were definitely u- using that area. And, um, I, I was already curious about how soon goats would move into that recently, um, scarred zone because Kevin White had sent out these photos earlier in the winter of, a what the avalanche folks call a glide avalanche. It's when, it, when the, uh, crown, um, it separates right down to bare ground. So the, the slab avalanche released, and this was up in the Chukat country where it's, it's much drier and it uh, pretty close to Kluklan. And he, he uh, was out doing a goat relocation flight and photographed six large goats that were actually grazing uh, right under this, this cr- two meter high crown of this, recent slab avalanche i think within a day or two of when it happened so they they uh uh, apparently discount the danger and and um are very interested in the vegetation that's exposed when these um glide cracks open up but uh when the avalanche experts saw those photos of kevin's that they kind of shuddered because those things often uh separate again and close to the same place so that was a, a extremely high risk uh, activity, and and helped us understand why so many of Kevin's goats end up at the the bottom of these run runouts. So I was paying special attention to our our scar after our mid April avalanche, and sure enough, that within a couple of days there were goats um, foraging out in the bare ground. Well, I imagine for them it's like that that food is it's probably a lot nicer than the food that they're able to get above the snow uh, throughout much of the winter. Yeah. Or, or back in the forest, it's pretty slim pickings under a close conifer canopy, but this nettle slide is just, uh, 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 it could probably, if it wasn't buried deep under snow, a lot of the winter, it could handle 10 times as many goats as we're currently using it. It's just, um, everything in there is edible. When you were describing the avalanche uh, above zone above Blue Lake, all, all the plants that you mentioned are, are also the dominant ones here. Uh, they're uh, tributary gullies that run straight downhill into this diagonal deep bedrock control gully. Um, and in between these, these uh, ravines are little buttresses or ribs 
I call them fern ribs because lady fern is the dominant plant on them. And the lady fern um, can be centuries old. These clones take um, decades to build up these mounds. And then in between them in the spring now, when you can see the vegetation, there are all these other um, delicious plants if you're a goat. And nettle being one of them, uh, myanthemum, fossil lily of the valley, black lily, uh, cow parsnip. Um, It's uh, everything in there with the exception of false hellebore is edible to a goat. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, those are some some rich places they end up being. I guess I guess the avalanches help keep the woody plants from ever getting fully established. Even just being on the margins, you know, it's probably enough to to periodically uh, discourage any any woody plants from from forming. There are there is a lot of alder and willow in there, um, and and that's something I wish I could say more about. Um, it's the scrub alder, the Sitka alder, that um, has such a flexible stem that the the snow just lays it over in the winter and the slides just right over the top of it. Um, and when I'm watching a goat in a in a scope and it's browsing on a woody shrub, I can't tell if it's alder or willow. The literature says it should be mostly willow because alder's pretty defended, but I, I'm, I'm sure that they are using it. I just don't have a, a sense of how much. Yeah, it would be, you know, it's interesting now that we're, we're talking about this because I have seen the slopes where there wasn't a lot of woody plants at all. And then there's a lot of, I mean, there's a reason it gets called slide alder. <laughs> um and and so there are slopes where there are the alders. I don't. We don't seem to have as much willow here. I imagine you, maybe you have more willow there, but uh, we do have do have willow here. It just seems to be more, in my experience, more associated uh, with with the wetter stream streamside kind of stuff. Um, and it may be that you know I think you have more species of willow that occur there, so it may be that it's it's different species of willow than we have here. But the uh, and salmon berries will show up sometimes in those kind of areas um, a little bit. And, but yeah, what is it that keeps, keeps the woody plants out, the salmon berries, the, the alders, um, the ribes, the, the, the uh, currants, and, and versus uh, places where that they're in the mix? Because uh, there's definitely clear avalanche track areas, which are just this dense jungle of, of kind of was a mix of nettles and uh, salmon berries and alders and uh, some other herbaceous plants kind of growing in, in places in pockets as well. And it was, it was kind of nightmarish to try and get through actually, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was helpful to have somebody have cut a trail through it because it was so thick uh, to try and climb through. And then you're, you know, the salmon berries are thick enough in themselves, but then you have these alders growing through them too. And it's like, do you go try to go under or do you climb on top of them or, you know, just even getting through all of that can be can be a real challenge, uh, and then yet other places are completely herbaceous, and so I don't know I don't know what's driving the difference there. You're typically a little ahead of us in Sitka, so it could be that you you've already reached that hellacious stage, but we we still have another week or two of really delightful traveling. But yeah, it, it's gonna it's gonna get pretty nasty soon, so I'm trying to take advantage of it while I can. 
And by, by the time it gets that thick, the goats are going to be out of there. They're, they're, they're going to be moving up higher onto the subalpine meadows and the alpine tundra. Mm, yeah. And, I, you know, something I think, I can't remember where I, where I heard this, that was that bears are pretty good at finding these uh, avalanche-killed goats, winter-killed goats in the springtime. And that just made me wonder, do you, do you see bears kind of operating in this area at all? I, I imagine that for the most part over the winter they're uh, they're like here largely in in their hibernation uh places but um you know by the time by this time i imagine you have a lot of active bears there and so i'm just curious if there's been any uh, bear activity showing up yeah there um it's mostly black bear here um unlike baranoff uh but they're um they're out there foraging with the goats. Uh, I, I watched a bear. Traver- the first bear I saw this spring went all the way across the nettle slide, maybe 300 yards across at um, probably a thousand foot elevation. And it went right past groups of goats that um, I don't think we're that concerned about it. <laughs> um, I did. I think I did notice a group of, five goats kind of on alert and it, it really made me wonder if they um acted as as a group if if a bear approached them um they, they would probably move into escape terrain if it if it did but these, these go this was a medium-sized black bear and it, it, um probably weighed about the same as the goats yeah it's interesting i i guess Brown bears are well. Obviously, they're they're generally bigger, larger. I have heard stories of black bears going after a moose or moose cubs at the very least. Um, I'm not sure how often black bears are predatory versus brown bears. And brown bears this time of year are seem to be mostly eating. I guess they're scavenging probably uh, winter kills, and then and then out in the estuaries eating eating the sedges. At least those are the ones that I see. I don't know <laughs> that that could very much be an observation bias because they're relatively easy to see on the beaches in the estuaries as opposed to wandering around in the uplands of finding, finding other sorts of food. So yeah, I guess it's uh, an open question to me as to whether their predatory uh, tendencies are more seasonal. I, I've heard of black bears going after deer fawns uh, during the fawning season, which I guess is coming up here shortly. Uh, but yeah, I don't know about, chasing after animals that are more capable of defending themselves or, or getting away in the form of these mountain goats. Yeah. The, at birthing time, according to the literature, uh, a nanny will seek out a really inaccessible part of her habitat and um, give birth on a, a ledge that is um, inaccessible to predators. Um, and then after a week or so, when the kid is, old enough to travel, she'll rejoin a, a nanny group. And we saw that uh, just a w- week ago um, on Thunder Mountain, uh, way up high near the, the cornice on Thunder Mountain in the valley. Uh, uh, it, w- it was too far away to get really good film of it, but we were watching a nanny and I thought, boy, there's something odd about her head. And it separates from her, and it turns out it's a seven-pound kid. And it probably was 
um, more than a day old because she allowed it to wander away from her on pretty steep terrain. I've watched Bob Armstrong's videos of young fawns just they're a few hours old where their legs just buckle and they, they collapse. And this, this kid was already well beyond that stage. It was on very steep terrain uh, and, and doing just fine already. Wow. So the goats are already fawning. I mean, uh, lambing then. Yeah, that was on May 19th. And that was at least a couple of days old. So, uh, uh, yeah, that, that, that was on the early end. Uh, they're supposed to be like mid May to mid June is the, when they're giving birth. And then Kevin says that he has uh, evidence for a uh, second estrus where, um, it, nannies that do not breed the first time around um, come back into heat. And, um, and then because they breed later, they're born later. Um, and, and that uh, sometimes produces a pretty uh, big range of kid development um, when you see them in the summer. And we saw that in the fall when they came down, there were kids of strikingly different sizes that probably reflected difference in birth times. Mm. Yeah, it would be interesting to, and I don't know, sort of, you know, coloring a, a good number of them. I don't know how you would, how you would manage to do it, but to, to get a sense of the, uh, pr presumably the summer range is, is a wider, more, more extensive than, than a relatively small winter range for, for these animals. And so what are the, where are these wintering animals coming from that are wintering in the slide above, above your place? Uh, and, and like how far are they all coming directly just from that ridge system, just immediately above, or are they coming from further afield and, and are they coming back year after year? Do they, do they go to, you know, alternate years or, or something? I could imagine that there's, there's certainly advantages to being familiar with the areas as we were talking about before, but, from a from an impact you know over time i could imagine that it, it was advantageous to to become adapted to alternate at some level you know however frequently because because that gives uh, i imagine the wintering range if there's enough animals there it can be really hard on the winter range uh and and maybe recovery time is helpful because it seems like that happens with deer like a hard winter they end up eating all this stuff and, and, and then if there's two hard winters in a row, the second one could be a lot worse uh, for their survival. Yeah, I think you definitely see that with deer. I'm starting to feel, looking at Nettle Slide, this 300-yard this, uh, wide belt of alternating fern ribs and um, Sitka alder thickets, that you could hardly improve on that for forage quality for, for winter, wintertime or summertime. Um, and I almost feel like ha the, the, that it would not be possible for goats to reach carrying capacity in, the, in this kind of habitat. Uh, and another great thing about this stretch of the channel moving north from down, downtown Juneau is it alternates between very large tree spruce forest on super steep colluvium on, on, you know, the rubble that's moved downhill by gravity. And that alternates with these open slide zones with either fern meadow or, or Sitka alder uh, on a really regular basis. 
And that's so perfect for goats because on a, when the snow piles up deep in those open areas and they can't use them, they can hang out under cover. Um, and, you know, the, the forage quality is way less in, in there, but um, they can survive until conditions mellow and they can get back out in the open. And then there's another habitat on those really steep slopes that I call alder spruce woodland. And these are not the slide alders, but big, beautiful, mature red alders, and in a few places, cottonwoods, that are also growing on these really steep, um, uh, uh, very gappy forest uh, situations that is better described as a woodland than a closed forest. And because there are all these gaps, the sun gets down into it and it's, uh, it's a very productive understory compared to your typical conifer old growth. Is that, is that going fairly high up in elevation or is that more lower elevation? That um, above me, it goes up to uh, maybe 1,400 feet. Yeah, maybe higher in a few places. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to think like I don't I'm trying to think around Sitka if I've seen red alder upland that much uh and I, i've certainly seen it upland off the beach uh you know along the rivers and stuff but along the slopes up higher um i don't i don't think of it as going that high too often yeah you know until this winter i wouldn't i would not have either i'm i'm, I'm a little bit embarrassed by how little attention i've paid to these really steep slopes right above where i live for the for the last two decades uh, and in the Landmark Trees project, I wasn't paying attention to it either. When, when we were traveling around Southeast Alaska trying to document our finest remaining giant tree forests, we were aware that you could find an occasional really large tree on a very steep colluvial slope. Colluvium is a word similar to alluvium. All, alluvium is material moved by water and colluvium is much steeper and it's it's the material that's um, spread downward by gravity um, so colluvial large tree forests uh, were just not really part of my search image from 1996 to 2005 when we were documenting the landmark trees and then in 2013 when we got this lidar and i can now sit at my desk and color code the forest canopy. So a tree that's more than 160 feet turns yellow, more than 180 turns orange, more than 200 turns red. And I can in, in minutes count all of the 200 foot trees in a watershed. And lo and behold, our finest tall tree forests are not on alluvium. They're on very steep colluvial slopes. Um, the, the most striking example is the toe slopes of Thunder Mountain out in Akwatak, the Mendenhall Valley. Um, there, there's um, 300 trees more than 200 feet tall, not much more than a mile from the Glacier Visitor Center. Um, and I didn't know about it because those are not the kind of places a bushwhacker normally goes. They're the kind of, you know, haul yourself up hand over hand and they're devil's club thickets um, and really hard to get around in. And I think I would have said in the landmark tree study that 
um, well, yeah, there's some big trees in there, but they're dispersed. And, I, and, and what we were looking for was one acre with a half a dozen really nice trees in it. Well, there's one acre, um, according to the LIDAR, and I haven't measured it yet, that has a dozen trees taller than 200 feet on the slopes of Thunder Mountain. So an acre is 200 feet on a side. So imagine a, cu a cube 200 feet on a side, uh, and, it, and it's got a dozen trees that would poke out of the top of that cube. Hmm. I suppose one of the other challenges with those steep slopes is just your sense of how high something is is impacted by your perception that the the taller trees are uphill essentially yeah uh, and yep. so there's a little bit of um, perspective issues uh, that might might arise out of that so so it's really changed my and i've just um well and partly because i uh, um i'm 70 now and i'm not going to be scrambling around on these slopes that much longer and i'm i'm feeling like oh uh, it's time that I figure this out. There's this amazing habitat in these very steep places right above my home that um, really deserves to have its story told. And and <laughs> you throw goats into that and like, boy, what, what cooler story could you have? Yeah, it sounds like a, one that'll be interesting to see how it, it develops in the as, as you get a chance to explore a little more carefully and how... How do you have a sense of of how large in diameter some of these tall trees are? Are they are they just especially tall, but not necessarily all that large in diameter? Or are they also large in diameter? Yeah, they're what we call the Michael Jordan trees. They're uh, they're at the peak of their uh, their growth trajectory, and they're going to start growing slower as time goes on. the The fattest trees that we have found are on the central and southern Tongass where they're upwards of 10 feet in diameter. And th but those trees are not all that tall usually because they're so old that the tops busted out. Um, so the, these are forests that are, we're really got a shot in the arm by little ice age disturbance. They're, uh, they're young and vigorous and extremely tall, probably not going to get taller and um, will, as they mature, if they if, say climate miraculously stabilizes and they're around 500 years from now, they'll look more like the, the trees of the Southern Tongass. They'll be fatter and shorter. Hmm. Uh, would these have been established post Little Ice Age or are they above where the, like, the glacier would have come down? I think they had to be established, but I think they're, uh, they, um, really benefited from that disturbance. I see. I guess the ones right above your house wouldn't have been in the path of the glacier. It was the, the other ones that you were mentioning in the valley. The ones I just described in the valley, um, the the two tallest trees we've found in the CBJ, or the two biggest, um, at the peak of the Little Ice Age, you could have thrown a rock from them down onto the ice surface. Oh, so wow. The, the, as the glacier advanced down to the back loop road, it was also hundreds of feet thicker. And so it climbed up the valley walls. And so right below those trees, you step down into an even aged spruce forest with, uh, you know, 150 uh, year old trees. Oh, wow. And do you have a sense of how old these, uh, these tall trees are? Have you had a chance to core any of them? Um, no, uh, I, I can guess, 
I would say I would say three to five hundred, but um, my increment bore, my normal one is eighteen inches. I do have a twenty-four inch increment bore, but it's really hard to use. I rarely use it, um, and that's not obviously not going to get you to the center ring of a tree that's more than five feet in diameter. So you, you can and you can drill it and pull out a core and count rings but then you don't know if that those that ring density um continues that way all the way to the middle um you have to make some assumptions um and these these trees again they're they're, um in many places they're really gappy with a lot of sunlight so they're um uh, in places where they would not have been shade inhibited in their youth. So the center rings could be very large. Yeah. Yeah. You know, looking at the slopes around Sitka, the, uh, on the, on the various mountains, hills around here, there's definitely one of the things that I kind of like doing is just looking at the textures and, and trying to decide, you know, some of the subtleties of color and form, which trees are which, and, and some of them are obviously spruce trees. Uh, the, the more, I guess, coarse textures, what I would describe those as, and the colors a little different than the hemlocks and certainly different than the cedars. But some of those look like they're, uh, they're pretty well spaced up there, especially on some of these, the edges of some of these ravines um, where I, th- I think it's, it's pretty well drained. Um, but I have never, I mean, the, the biggest trees that I've yet run into have all been down in, in Indian River, Valley Bottom kind of kind of areas. Um, and I don't think they are, they're, well, with the exception of that one hemlock that we went up and visited and, and measured. And, and the top has blown out of that. I think the top had probably blown out before, but it's blown out again. Uh, and it's significantly shorter than it once was. It's still alive. It's the, the, some of the larger branches that were, you know, small trees in themselves, essentially, uh, are still still alive. And it, it has its probably similar canopy width as it did. Uh, but, but yeah, it lost, I would guess, at least 50 feet out of the top of it um, some, a few years ago. Uh, but yeah, other than that tree, um, the, which is exceptionally large by, by hemlock standards, the, the larger spruces and so forth are nothing approaching, you know, what, what's been found on southern, southern Tongass. Yeah, that's a remarkable tree. That, that uh, it's an amazing old hemlock. Yeah, yeah, it it's uh and and so so thoroughly rotted on the inside. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know the old my side of the mountain story where the kid kid makes a home inside of an old tree. Basically, it's like this tree you could probably do that in. It's it's uh, I'm six feet tall. I'd, I maybe if I because it's it's full of. I mean, I've climbed up inside of it before, and and I can't. I, sh- I shine a light up. And couldn't see the top of the hollow uh, shining a light up there, but it's still I'm probably eight eight feet, ten feet at least off ground level, and I assume that's just mostly rotten rotten wood fiber stuff that's that's just accumulated in there, uh, and so it would take some digging out, but it's it's kind of fun to fun to think about. But y'all have to take a look on some of these. I've been I actually just the other day uh, was uh, up at. I don't know if you visited Thimbleberry Lake here in Sitka, but nice, nice trail along the lake there. And I was up there and heard a pygmy owl calling, which we don't have pygmy owls all the time. It seemed like it was close enough that it was worth uh, going up off the trail to see if I could 
uh, hear it better or, or get a nice recording of it or, or even better get a look at it. And and just right off the trail, I ended up, you know, I, I made it through the the little thicket of salmon berries that was just right at the edge of the trail. This this trail goes along a power line corridor, so they've they've cut everything right along the trail to maintain the power line corridor. But you don't have to go far up to be off of that where they've cut. And so it's salmonberry thicket, and then and then step inside the forest there, and it was this. I don't really remember seeing anything quite like it before, because uh, there was alders, and they were old alders. They were they were old red alders that m- most of them were dead, but given red alder they couldn't have been dead for that long or they would have fallen down already uh, and there were some spruces in there in the mix and it was it was pretty wet so i think but but there was no obvious like surface runoff there's no channels or streams so i think it was just kind of a seep that that kept this this area pretty wet but it was it was this mix of alder and uh, spruce and it was more open than the other conifer stuff that it was around it and it was just a small patch but I, I that was coming to mind as you were describing some of these areas that you were seeing, and and I'm wondering if it, it maybe it's just a smaller version of of what you're talking about. Now I'm kind of curious to get out and and look around and and see what might be. Uh, that's one of the, another one of the things that I I have to keep reminding myself of. It's like I feel like I've explored all the places at some level, but there's all I have to do is look at the map of my observations that I have an iNaturalist or something. And I see all these gaps of places where I've never put any observations and it's, that doesn't take a lot of, uh, a lot of area to hide some really kind of interesting things that if you, if you make an effort to go look in there, you'll find different formations or plants or, or kind of microhabitat things that are unexpected. Um, and so, so this is, helping me feel a little more motivated to explore some of the hill slopes that yeah don't necessarily it's it's easier to go up the hill on the on the trails and and not have to kind of do all the side hilling and occasional thrashing through through thickets or whatever or blow down uh so but it sounds like you're finding some some interesting uh stories in those in those kind of areas oh yeah it's interesting you heard a small owl there um there uh the i'm sure you use the um our grandparents names on the land um atlas of clicket names there uh and you your collection for sitka is way better than ours for akintaku country uh, we have maybe 110 names but i was given an additional list by marie olson the clan mother the wushkitan who had worked with cecilia coons who's no longer alive on their own place names uh, collection. And one of the names was in what we call Snowslide Gulch, just south of downtown, which is one of our most serious avalanche shoots. And the Clinket name for that uh, runout is Small Owl Landslide. And that that really got my attention because I once at Sweetheart Lake spent several nights in a canvas wall tent in one of those avalanche runouts. And it was after the avalanche danger had passed. It was into the early summer, I think. And when we were in there, it, it was a, a constant invasion of deer mice into the the tent. The tent had no floor, so they could come up under, and they were crawling all over us, even though we were up on cots. And um, the young men who were maintaining the camp had those uh, 
water traps, you know, over a, a, a bucket where the mouse runs out on a string and drops in and drowns. And all night we were listening to drowning mice and they would um, cart the bodies away. And um, the next night there'd be an invasion of more mice. And we heard three different small owls uh, while we were there. I think Solwet, Pygmy, and um, Screech. And I, I just, uh, for, uh, it's not the place, uh, kind of place a person would normally think to camp, but I'm so grateful for that uh, opportunity because it would never have occurred to me how uh, that whole dynamic of, of that being like the ultimate habitat for small rodents and therefore drawing in their predators. And and then to throw in the 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 cultural connection to think about what that tells us about how dialed in those people were like how many small owls have you ever seen and if you don't have a sibley app how would you even know what that little hoot is from um so so here people are not not only knew there were uh uh owls in there but you know that that was their way of um naming that habitat yeah yeah that's really really fascinating i hadn't really thought about that those herbaceous meadows probably are much um in avalanche runouts and so forth are probably much richer for the for the small mammals uh habitat wise than than the coniferous forest is uh, and so it would make some sense that there'd be higher density of them there. I don't know when you talked to Bob Armstrong recently, did he tell you about his uh, uh, attempts to film small rodents climbing trees? Oh, we talked a little, he, he talked a little bit about, it was, I think it was mostly in the context of flying squirrels, but, um, but I think he did mention seeing, seeing uh, some of the smaller rodents on, um, yeah, just climbing up the outside of trees. Yeah, he learned that voles are climbing trees, and I'll bet you deer mice are even better at it. They're more agile. Um, so, so he set up motion cameras, and he got a surprising variety of, of critters that would go a little ways up the trunk of a tree for, to, for his peanut butter bait. Um, but it, it, uh, when I think about these scrub alder thickets, there's so much more of the scale of what mice and voles could handle that. Um, yeah, it just, it just impresses me as optimum habitat quality. And then the much more productive shrub and forb layer in those openings, then you get back under the the big conifers. You've been listening to part of a conversation that I recorded with Richard Carstensen, longtime naturalist in Southeast Alaska based out of Juneau. You can find out more about what he's been up to at junonature.discoverysoutheast.org or you can just search for Juno Nature and it should come up as one of the top options. I'd like to thank him again for taking some time to visit with me and thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.